Support comes from Empower Missouri's Week of Action with in-person and virtual advocacy training for affordable housing, criminal justice, and food security initiatives March 25th through 28th. Registration at empowermissouri.org WOA. The presidential election in Missouri and Illinois has come and gone. And to keep things simple, Missouri Republicans had a banner night and some Illinois Republicans, especially in the Metro East, are also in a mood to celebrate. And Missouri Democrats are still in the political wilderness. To go a little bit more in depth, we bring in everybody from St. Louis Public Radio's political team to break down the results and some of the lingering storylines that we'll be following post-election. That's coming up on a special edition of Politically Speaking. This is the Politically Speaking podcast, the definitive show about Missouri politics. It's a little complicated in Bolivar because there is a Parsons family there. But we also knew that it was important to make sure that that we got to where we needed to go. You know if you walk in a room and you're getting ready to make a decision and everybody in the room looks like you, you need to stop. And right now what happens in the United States Senate is as critical as anywhere else in the country. I really want the state to succeed. We want everybody to uh, know that we're all working together. I just worked hard to try to build my name where I didn't have the money. And welcome to Politically Speaking. I am your host, St. Louis Public Radio political correspondent, Jason Rosenbaum. Joining me via Zoom is St. Louis Public Radio State House reporter. Jacqueline Driscoll. And joining us is St. Louis Public Radio's Rala reporter. Jonathan All. And we're going to be talking about Tuesday's election in Missouri and Illinois as well with Eric Schmidt, as well as uh, St. Louis and St. Louis County elections with St. Louis Public Radio political reporter Rachel Lippman later in the show. And uh, Jonathan, we wanted to bring you in because you were at the Re- Missouri Republican extravaganza in Springfield, where Missouri Republicans won a resounding victory across the board. What did you see? What did you find out? What should we know? Well, you know, I think that that uh, the the level of confidence was so high, but it was kind of a quiet confidence because, you know, I, I've made the analogy. It was more like going to a birthday party or an anniversary celebration because, like, everybody knew that the guest of honor would arrive and everybody would be happy and then it would be over and they'd go home. So it was it was kind of unique in that way that it felt like there was no suspense at all. It felt like that crew felt very confident that Governor Parson was going to win and that uh, um, the rest of the statewide ticket would prevail as well. Um, you know, it, in the times of COVID, it was a little bit of a different uh, election night than the, the many I've been to before in that, you know, uh, there was a fair amount of attempts at social distancing. Uh, the number of people allowed in the room was kept uh, uh, kept at a certain number to comply with uh, county regulations. I mean, to the point where they were counting the number of people in the room, and if there were too many, you know, they wouldn't let more people in. And if you left to go to the restroom or something and tried to come back, they'd hold it up. Um, and the people who weren't eating and drinking, most of them were wearing masks. Although that did kind of lessen throughout the night uh, and, and all the way. And by the time Governor Parson came out to speak, it was pretty much uh, business as usual in a regular uh, election party. But, you know, it was, uh, it was definitely uh, a very, very confident group of people. Basically, because President Trump won Missouri by over 15 points, that meant that 
or it certainly contributed to the fact that Governor Parson beat State Auditor Nicole Galloway by 17. All the GOP statewide officials, so Lieutenant Governor Mike Kehoe, State Treasurer Scott Fitzpatrick, Attorney General Eric Schmidt, and Secretary of State Jay Ashcroft, all won by high double digits. You had situations where Congresswoman Ann Wagner, who was seen as vulnerable in the 2nd Congressional District, won over Democratic State Senator Jill Shoup. And even Amendment 3, which uh, repeals the clean Missouri redistricting system and had basically no paid, had a very minimal yes campaign, ended up passing, even though there was a vigorous no campaign. Um, And I I think a lot of it has to do with the fact that rural Missouri just turned out like crazy for Republicans. Uh, Jonathan, was that your observation as well, that the Democrats just are completely in the wilderness in outstate Missouri? Well, in the wilderness, I, I think it depends on what their goal is. You know, if their goal is to get elected to office by... Um, trying to convert the people in rural Missouri to their core platform and what they want, then yeah, that's clearly not working. Um, the other thing that they could be attempting to do that they're not is trying to meet um, meet rural voters where they are, and they're not doing that either. So maybe they are in the wilderness. But I think it really, you know, I think it's easy to just say that the the Democratic Party's a mess in Missouri, but I think that more specifically, there's a push pull between what is it that they want to do um, to to get a wider base, um, and if it's you know it, if they're going to go after rural voters and try to swing them to get excited about the same message they're giving to urban voters, I don't think that's going to work. Um, and if you look back at successful statewide Democrats in the past, be it, you know, Nixon or Carnahan or uh, 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 McCaskill, you know, those were all people that were more moderate and kind of found that middle ground so that they could at least appeal to rural voters. And that doesn't seem to be happening. It seemed like the push was, hey, rural people get excited about the same things that we're excited about in the urban areas from the Democratic side of the ticket. And I don't think it really worked. One thing that I did uh, notice pretty uh, quickly as Governor Mike Parson was giving his victory speech was the fact that he stayed completely away from the topic of coronavirus. We saw that this was something that um, his opponent, Auditor Nicole Galloway, hit hard on the campaign trail. She mentioned it again. That was a, you know, a shining theme throughout her concession speech. I, I'm interested to try to understand about the party with, you know, milling among, amongst the crowd. Was there any conversation about the coronavirus or did that kind of seem like something that was taken and put on a shelf other than some of the, you know, the restrictions you saw in place at the event? I mean, I think that in general, you know, rural Missourians are more of a mind that, that, you know, the the coronavirus is not as big a deal in rural areas that is, as it is in urban. That's what they believe, whether that's true or not. You know, I, I suppose that's debatable. Um, but, you know, I think they like the idea of making it personal responsibility. They like Mike Parsons' approach to it. So in that respect, yeah, they put it on the shelf because, yes, it's a problem. Yes, people are working on it. Yes, you have, you know, the ability to wear a mask or to not go out if you don't want to. But if you don't want to, you don't have to. I think, 
you know, Mike Parsons' line that he used a number of times is don't live in fear but live in concern is generally the way that rural people like to look at this. They're like, okay, well, I'll be concerned about it, but I'm still going to do whatever I want to do as long as I'm comfortable doing it. And I think that, that, uh, that yeah, that was never... Really, you know, Galloway's two big issues that I heard a lot about were, you know, Parsons handling the pandemic and a lack of, you know, Medicaid expansion. <laughs> and did those two things just did not resonate in rural areas at all. And, and I don't know why she kept going after that as her core issue, her core issues, when I don't think those were messages that, that really resonated in the rural parts of the state. Well, I think that also goes back to, you know, the Democrat Party, Missouri, and picking up those rural voters instead of alienating them, right? They, they definitely need to change their strategy there because as we've seen, you cannot just rely on urban voters in St. Louis and Kansas City and, you know, in other smaller cities like Columbia and Springfield. It's just not going to be enough as we've seen Parson you know, severely <laughs> beat Auditor Nicole Galloway when polls indicated that it might be closer than um, it was earlier anticipated to be. But as you mentioned on uh, the episode of Sloda, how can we really trust polls after what we've seen? And by the way, before yeah, before you answer, Jonathan, I'm just going to say this, what I said on Sloda, Missouri polls are straight up trash and we really just need to stop paying attention to them. I think most polls are trash. I think that, you know, I think the ones that looked like they were accurate this time are probably more dumb luck than 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 accuracy. But, you know, that that might be a, a different conversation for a different day. I, I will say, Jacqueline, that I think that the Democrats have it's they do have some tricky business because they need to really hit on those issues that appeal to urban voters to get them energized to show up so that in their strongholds they win overwhelmingly, but they also need to have uh, issues that appeal to rural areas. Like, I, like for example, um, what, if, what if Nicole Galloway had said, made a bigger deal of, hey, Mike Parson makes all of this, you know, hey, about wanting decisions to be local uh, and make everything local. Well, he didn't feel that way about large livestock operations. And the number of anti-large livestock operation people, which, by the way, crosses party lines in a lot of ways, that could have been a group that she could have appealed to and tried to make some noise about in rural areas. Or what if she what if she just held press events on the front lawn of every hospital that had closed in rural Missouri in the last 10 years? You know, that would have been another thing. And that is another issue that is important to rural voters that does kind of cross that political divide. So there were ways, but then, you know, I'm not a campaign manager, so I don't even know if this is possible to successfully run where you're giving one message to one group of people and another message to another. But I certainly know that that her messages in rural areas did not resonate. And yes, we have 2020 hindsight to say that no, they did not. Definitely. And, and I'll be interested to see, since Missouri has increasingly grown so much more conservative, particularly, you know, in the, in the past couple of elections, how these conservative voters turn out for some, for another election when someone like Donald Trump is no longer on the ticket. I think that's going to be really interesting to see because people like him or not are really energized. He's really like tapped into a very specific base. And 
I mean, as you we're still as we're taping right now, we still don't know the outcome of the election. And as we've mentioned, polls are trash, but it indicated that it was going to be an easy victory for Biden. And um, I'll, I'll just be interested to see what 2024 brings when President Donald Trump is no longer on the ticket. Yeah, especially because one of the things I thought was very telling two years ago um, was when, uh, you know, in the the, Mc- the McCaskill-Holly race, you know, immigration was a huge issue in that race. And Holly's point of view was build a wall and, you know, and, and uh, get rid of all uh, undocumented uh, people in the United States. McCaskill's point of view is, look, we need to have better border security. In some places, it's a wall. In some places, it's drones. In some places, it's more staff. In some places, you know, so she said, I want to talk to the border agents and come up with a comprehensive way to strengthen our borders while we also talk about that. You know, she had this very nuanced, moderate position and Missouri didn't want to hear it. They 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 definitely went with Josh Hawley's point of view on that. So I yes, I think the, the 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 state is going much more conservative in that direction. And how much of that is at the top of the ticket, and how much of it is just the innate qualities of the state as a whole is difficult to tell. Well, Jonathan, thank you for joining us and providing your firsthand look at Parson Palooza in Springfield. Uh, Welcome. We'll, we'll be taking a quick break, and then Jacqueline will be talking with. St. Louis Public Radio Metro East reporter Eric Schmid about the Metro East elections. Welcome back to Politically Speaking. This is Jacqueline Driscoll. I'm joined with Eric Schmid to talk about a little bit of hashtag Illinois values. Uh, The Illinois 13th District, uh, Congressman Rodney Davis secured um, a fifth term as Uh, In Illinois' 13th district, he beat out Betsy Dirksen-Londrigan, his Democrat opponent, um, for a second time now. Eric, um, we talked to both candidates. Much of the race similar (laughs) to uh, 2018. What did you make of the results last night? Yeah, this race was really interesting to watch come in, actually, because... When you looked at the results in 2020 versus 2018, Davis expanded his the number of people who he was able to turn out and vote in like every single county in the 13th district. I'm looking at the numbers and it's like between 400 and as many as 8,000 new voters in districts, in not districts, in counties that he had carried in 2018. So Davis really was able to get a lot of people energized, a lot of people excited uh, to go out and vote for him. And Londrigan did, or uh, Dirksen Londrigan rather, she did increase the number of people who voted for her. But when you look at just the the sheer numbers, Davis turned out almost, I think, uh, let me do some quick math. Uh, It's too early for this. Like between three or four times as many, I believe. No, more than that. Almost five times as many. As as we've mentioned, I covered this race pretty closely in 2018. 13th District is my home district um, where my where my family lives. So obviously it was something that was important to me. And in 2018, it was a tight race. It was so tight that some networks even called the race for Dirks and Londrigan over Davis, had to backtrack that. Davis told us on our episode of Politically Speaking um, earlier that 
then House Speaker Paul Ryan had called to, you know, congratulate him on a hard fought campaign, but was sad that he lost the seat. So it was so tight. I mean, Davis lost that race, or excuse me, Davis won that race by less than 2,000 votes. So it's interesting to me that it was essentially the same race replayed in 2020, but Davis was able to generate so much more excitement or, or get out more people to vote for him. What do you tie that to, Eric? Yeah, so I was talking to, with the campaign, Davis's campaign this morning, and they said that this time around, uh, they had the largest ground camp or ground game that they had for any of Davis's uh, prior races. So fifth time around, they had the most extensive or what they say is their most extensive um, ground campaign game. And that's what they say really led to his victory. Uh, they were able to, they continued to knock on doors, even though it was a pandemic, we were able to make contact with a lot of uh, different new voters. And I really am inclined to believe that when you look at the way that the results came out, Davis increased, he only had one uh, specific county where there were fewer people who uh, voted for him and, and, and Dirks and Londrigan in 2018. Other than that, every single part of the district there were more people who turned out for him than did in 2018 and that's kind of just how it how it how it comes down as we said on or as you probably heard on the podcast if you listen to it davis was really excited about this race he said he was energized he said he was really excited to get in the fight to to really push for what he saw as uh, what he could offer the residents of his district and that comes out with more people voting for him i think it also you can take a look and say uh kind of similar things in terms of uh rural areas of illinois versus rural areas of missouri what we we're just talking about with jonathan there were just a lot more people who came out to vote in this election and that happened to be for uh for davis and again, as as I mentioned in, in speaking with Jonathan too, I wonder how much of that that um, excitement was generated by the top of the ticket. You know, initially you think it, it was expected that more people would come out, more of the Democrats would come out um, for the Biden Harris ticket, but it, it appears that the top of the ticket on the Republican side for the Trump Pence ticket, you know, performed very well also in those areas to get people out voting for Davis for another term. I'm interested in speaking with um, Davis's camp. Obviously, we've all listened to this race now two times play out in front of our eyes and healthcare was so important. This was something that Dirksen Londrigan hit hard saying that um, Congressman Rodney Davis was supporting, you know, removing um, protections for pre-existing conditions in, in a new national healthcare plan. Um, was there any talk of that when you spoke with uh, Davis's people this morning? Is that, you know, is is making sure that people have access to health care? We heard that from Davis that that was going to be a priority. Um, did they say anything about that this morning since it was such, you know, a, a strong message on the campaign? We didn't touch on that this morning, but Davis did uh, include that in part of a victory speech he gave last night uh, when the AP had first called the race for him. He said 
that he was excited to go back to Congress and, and work to find a bipartisan solution for um, pre-existing conditions. He, he was emphatic about saying Democrats and Republicans are going to come together and we're going to codify protections for pre-existing conditions. And he went on to talk about other kinds of promises that he uh, wanted to make for these next two years, promises that he had made in, in the past and, 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 uh, almost laying out a roadmap for how he signaled that he wanted to be held accountable. And pre-existing conditions was right there. He said, we are going to make sure that these are protected. And that might be something that comes out of these race, uh, these two hard-fought races between him and Dirksen Londrigan highlighting healthcare is that before we may not have had a definitive position of where Davis stood on the issue of pre-existing conditions, but now he has signaled where he stands. And I think that's really important to note, especially as we see how this uh, plays out over the next couple years. Will, will he live up to these uh, declarations that he's going to get pre-existing conditions protected or was is that just a you know something that he has said in the moment that's something that we'll have to look for and i i guess the only the other thing i would add is he actually he thanked Londrigan in his uh, in his um victory speech saying that the uh the 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 campaign against her two times around was he liked the grittiness the hardness of the race i think that he was trying to signal that it uh would make it so central illinoisans were really represented by somebody who uh, had their interests and their values at heart taking it back to 2018 one of the big factors against uh congressman rodney davis that um his opponents were hitting was he wasn't holding town halls he wasn't coming and talking to his voters and that was something that a lot of people in the 13th district wanted and that was something that worked against him in 2018 now um you know in the era of the coronavirus although he did have a strong ground game we also just didn't see um campaigning in the way that we normally did and um dirksen Londrigan, her campaign obviously was hit by the coronavirus and their ground game, we saw nationally Democrats were much much more reluctant to get out and you know hold these larger rallies or town halls or speak to voters in large gatherings. Um, so I would also anticipate that that did affect uh, Dirksen Londrigan's campaign. Any other takeaways you have um, as um, another election cycle comes to a close for the Illinois 13th? I think that it's going to be really important to see how the state does redistricting. Uh, the, as far as I know, the, the state legislature is what is able to determine the congressional districts once we get the results back from the census. It'll be really important to see how does the Illinois state legislature handle Southern Illinois districts? Are they going to uh, reorient them in a way that would bolster um, the kind of support that Davis already sees in his district? Uh, are they going to make it harder for for him to be able to secure a, a victory in the future just based off of you know which parts of the state are included or are, are not included? I think that's going to be really important to uh, to look out for as we move forward because that's how 2022 is going to play out. Illinois 13th this is the last time that the Illinois 13th district will look the way it does. And it's going to change. 
uh, and that may have an effect on uh, the margins of victory in the future. It might make it easier for Davis to win. It might really make it a lot harder for him to win. We'll just have to see what those areas look like. And we'll be right back after this short break. Jason Rosenbaum will be talking with St. Louis political reporter Rachel Lippman about the results in St. Louis and St. Louis County. St. Louis Public Radio's The Gateway gives you the day's news first thing every weekday morning. From the ever-evolving relationship between St. Louis City and County to developments in the Missouri and Illinois state capitals and reports from our correspondents in Rolla and the Metro East. We put it all in a roughly 10-minute package with clarity and context. Download The Gateway wherever you get podcasts. And joining us to talk about some of the key races in St. Louis County and St. Louis is Rachel Lipman, one of St. Louis Public Radio's political reporters. Let's start in St. Louis County, where uh, St. Louis County Executive Sam Page won pretty convincingly over Republican Paul Barry. Barry ran against Steve Stanger in 2018 and lost by about 20 percentage points. And Rachel, I don't think the result was that much different this time around. No, the final unofficial results on St. Louis County's website have uh, Barry losing 58% to 34%. So like you said, a very similar margin. I'm wondering, though, if... The, the Republicans had fielded a, a, a different or a better candidate if they had found like a Rick Stream or maybe even a Mark Montevani. I know that he ran in the Democratic primary against Page. But if they had found a different candidate, one who hadn't explicitly said things like, I need the job because I have liens and against me and, you know, court penalties that I need to pay, if they may have been able to close that margin. Um, we've seen in some of the other races that we'll be discussing on the show, both in St. Louis County and in the rest of the state that, you know, Republicans did pretty well in some areas of St. Louis County. And you've got to wonder if a stronger Republican candidate would have narrowed that margin, maybe given them a shot of, uh, you know, taking the St. Louis County executive race. I think it would have been challenging for St. Louis County Republicans to win the county executive's office. But there's no question that there's been a lot of animosity toward Page from both parties primarily because of his COVID response, but also the way he's handled things like getting rid of Hazel Irby and, and some other aspects of, of his, his, his reign as county executive. So let's move to St. Louis City, where I think the big news is that for a number of city elected offices, there's a, an entirely new way of electing people. Explain what Proposition D is and how it's going to change St. Louis politics. Proposition D was a ballot initiative that got on the November ballot via a signature campaign. I think they got the signatures in kind of just as the COVID-19 pandemic was ramping up. So they were able to, to get it on the ballot basically, I won't say just in time, but before it got a lot more complicated to collect signatures. And what it does is it takes the offices of mayor, comptroller, board president, and members of the board of aldermen and makes them into nonpartisan offices. So uh, people who want to run for office will run without party labels, Republican, Democratic, Green, constitutional, etc. None of them will have party labels. There'll be nothing like an independent candidate, just nonpartisan, straight up. There will still be a March primary and an April general, but the March primary will feature what is known as approval voting, where uh, voters can cast a ballot for as many candidates as they want. They can say, I like all seven that are on the ballot, hypothetically speaking. They 
they can say, I like five of the seven, one of the seven, none of the seven, whatever. The top two vote getters in that March primary advanced to the April general election. What supporters of Proposition D said this would do is it would make uh, candidates have to get a broad base of support in order to win. Because the city is so heavily Democratic, everything gets decided mostly in the primaries. And if you have seven, eight, nine, ten candidates running, which is not unheard of, especially for seats like mayor, people can get 32, 33, 34, 35% of the vote and basically win because there's no competitive general election. And uh, by forcing this to go to a second round and, you know, sort of have a a true one-on-one race, basically they're saying that it requires and forces candidates to get a broader coalition of support. The reason this only applies to those four races is because the way that county offices are elected. So this is circuit attorney, treasurer, uh, Uh, revenue collector, all of those races that are because St. Louis is a county as well as a city, is those are set by either the charter or state law, the uh, way those elections are conducted. How do you think this is going to affect the mayor's race? And I also want to bring up a scenario that uh, former alderman Antonio French brought up, that uh, approval voting may actually incentivize like a candidate like Cruson telling all of her voters to vote for her and Jimmy Matthews, a perennial candidate, so that the top two people are Lida Cruson and Jimmy Matthews, and she basically wins by default. How are some of these dynamics going to play in next year? Well, if you listen to the detractors of Proposition D, and there were many of them at the Board of Aldermen, for example, they saw this as being something that was tailor-made for uh, Tashara Jones to get a one-on-one shot and to get elected. But strategic voting is not out of the question when you have an approval voting system. In fact, as I was researching Proposition D, a couple of the experts that I spoke to said, yes, that is something that candidates can do. They said individual voters don't have a lot of incentive to vote strategically, you know, for them, it's just, I'm going to go in and I'm going to cast a ballot for for who I want to, and I understand approval voting. But yes, campaigns themselves absolutely do have an incentive to encourage voting for your candidate and then endorsing a, a cupcake or a pushover candidate to also get into that second round. Before I let you go, uh, give me a sense of what happened with the residency ballot item. So uh, residency did not even break 50 percent, um, and it would have required 60 percent. So this was was actually quite a defeat for the effort to lift the residency requirement permanently for all city employees. Um, state law change has given some public safety employees like police officers, firefighters, etc., the right to move out or to live outside of the city for three years. If you're hired after three years, you have to live for seven. I will be curious to see if there are any legal challenges filed to this because it does set up an unequal system between certain classes of employees. Um, but one of my favorite kind of nerdy St. Louis political, legal, whatever question uh, things is that there have been court rulings both ways on whether city law or city charter or state law trumps, and the city has successfully argued both sides of those issues. So as they stay in the business, stay tuned. Thank you, Rachel. We'll be right back after this quick break. And before we depart on this uh, very energetic Wednesday after an election, I want to give Jacqueline, Jonathan, and Eric kind of uh, a few moments to give their final thoughts about this historic election cycle. Jonathan, what did we learn here? 
maybe it's just where I am physically, uh, but I think that that this is if, as if we didn't have enough. What we saw was absolute concrete, stone-cold, definitive proof that the Democratic Party needs to figure out a way to engage rural voters if they're going to be anything other than an afterthought in this state. Eric. I think one of the biggest stories from this election, and, and we'll continue to see this, is uh, early voting, mail-in voting, in-person early voting, and the, the ways in which voters want to engage in future elections, whether or not voters in Illinois, where it was really easy to get a mail-in ballot uh, versus Missouri, whether voters are going to gravitate towards that option in the future or whether this was a one-off just because of the constraints of the coronavirus pandemic. Jacqueline, what are your final thoughts about this crazy Missouri and Illinois election cycle? You know, I, I, I would like to leave it at simply um, my thoughts are I'm really glad it's over. Um, but it was really contentious. Um, but for all of that being said and how excited I am to see, you know, our, our country kind of regain some sense of normalcy, I was really energized to see the turnout of people voting in this election, not just in Missouri, not just in Illinois, but across the country. Obviously, Democrats were boasting about massive, you know, cash advances and how they had the opportunities to flip seats in, in states like Texas and in Georgia and possibly win those states. So Democrats were energized, but also as we are seeing, as we are still counting the votes with this record number of turnout, Republicans were energized too. So for all the bad things you can say about this election cycle, it did turn out a lot of people to vote. And, um, you know, that makes me hopeful for the future. I think Missouri Democrats have, to say that they have a lot of work to do would be an understatement. They've had a lot of work to do now for two straight election cycles where they've just been completely decimated. And as Jonathan mentioned, they cannot continue on a pathway where they continue to just see rural voters as an unnecessary part of their coalition, because the math does not work for them to win statewide elections if they're only going to be winning big margins in St. Louis, St. Louis County, and Kansas City, and to some extent, Boone County. Um, that doesn't even get into the part about how they're not doing very well in conservative suburbs like St. Charles County and Jefferson County. Buchanan County is not a suburb, but is an exurb. They used to do good in Buchanan County. They are doing miserably now. Um, a lot of this has to do with Trump. And as you mentioned, Jacqueline, I'm interested to see if the state kind of reverts back to 2008, 2012 levels when Trump is off the presidential ballot. But th they need more than just Trump to be gone. They have to build an organization and they have to actually talk with voters in rural Missouri and exurban Missouri too. ask them about what the issues that they want are and not just and not just uh, try to confine their candidates into some broad issue box that they think is going to hit the right marks because this has not worked in 2008. It did not work in 2016. It did not work in 2014, by the way, which was not a major election year. But, you know, Republicans won that, too. Um, there's probably a lot of soul searching among Missouri Democrats and a lot of elation among Missouri Republicans. Right. <coughs> Excuse me. There's probably a lot of soul searching going on among Missouri Democrats and a lot of elation with Missouri Republicans, and we'll be talking more about that in the weeks and months ahead. I just want to thank all of you, as well as Rachel Lipman, as well as our editor, Fred Ehrlich, for really bringing this election coverage together. This was a true team effort to do what we, we do as journalists and try to inform the public about the issues and people that affect their, their government and their lives. 
Um, and I, it couldn't have been, it couldn't have done it with a greater group of people. And I'm glad that we could include all of them in one podcast. So for all of our stories, stlpublicradio.org. Follow me on Twitter at Jay Rosenbaum. Jonathan, how can people follow you on Twitter? They can follow me at Jonathan All. Eric, how can people follow you on Twitter? They can follow me at Eric D. Schmid, and that's S-C-H-M-I-D, and there's no T there. Important distinction. Jacqueline, how can people follow you on Twitter? Driscoll and PR. You can follow Rachel on Twitter at R. Lipman. And until next time, so long.